Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassion and accountability. And welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today, our guest dubs himself a chief people officer, where he helps companies build cultures, leaders, teams, and workplaces that primarily focus on building team success. He's coached and trained more than 30,000 employees over his career. He's a keynote speaker on teamwork, employee experience, and managing others, and he's certified with SHRM and HRCI. I'm going to have to ask what those letters are. I'm sure there's human resources in there somewhere. He's a fellow podcaster where he hosts executives and other... Wait a minute. Wait, a fellow podcaster. And I haven't been invited yet, so we're going to have to... We have to get invited on his podcast, and he's a TED Talk speaker. He was featured in the presentations, How to Get Coworkers to Like Each Other, and has been viewed over 50,000 times. Not bad. He's done eight publications, and these two topics really struck me, including how to forgive anyone and move forward in your life. Love that. And best places to go to build powerful relationships, which really ties into our definition of leadership where it starts by defining how to build relationships so welcome to leading from the front jason troy how you doing jason i'm doing fantastic it's great to be here and to speak to your fantastic tribe looking forward to hearing your message on building teams and and leadership and how you go about that but let's let's go back in history well first of all what is hrci i just i just have to know what that is first it's the Human Resources Certificate Certification Institute. So what they do is there's two bodies that you can get certification from if you're a human resources person or really anyone to understand kind of the full body of how that discipline is being done right, in any sort of organization. And so it's a standard piece of knowledge. Excellent. Excellent. So that really ties into your title of chief people officer that uh, you got to know, you got to know the functions, you got to know all of the bits and pieces. And it's really interesting as I tell people, sometimes they don't realize in human resources, in larger companies, you have specializations and in smaller organizations, you have generalists. So you got to know it all. So it just depends on where you fill those roles in HR. They're tough positions. So let's talk a little bit about your background, your experience. How did you get to the point of being a CPO? Well, like everyone else, it's a windy road. I started off going to law school, getting my master's in communications, and I just had a technology bug. You know, I really enjoyed, you know, solving complex problems and really the gold rush in technology in Silicon Valley started towards the end of, well, yeah, pretty close to the end of the time that I, I was in grad school. And I decided I really wanted to do that much more, especially as I started to interview in New York City. During my second year, I had to take a bunch of interviews and I prepared for all of them. I asked the third year law students what questions to ask. So I, you know, I had a really good plan. 
And then in the end, they said, ask sort of an easy exit interview question. And, you know, I asked now what I know to be obviously a really naive question to ask someone. But back then, I thought it was an easy one. And it was the only one I didn't ask anyone to say, well, what do you think about this? Which always I've learned in life, ask everything and get it prepped beforehand was, are you happy? Hmm. When you ask that question, you know, to 30 some people from partner level to associate, and these are all, I mean, super smart people, accomplished, right? And it was the longest question for me to ask it and them to answer. Hmm. And it was the one where you could see their eyes darting around and their body language different. And I would have never probably noticed it had it not been literally everyone. Right. Because at some point when you see like your mind at some point brings to you probably like halfway through, I was like something strange about some of these interviews when I'm ending them up. And I didn't realize at the time is the question. I just thought it could be a lot of different things. And then I realized that people were really having a hard time. So I kept asking it because I really wanted to know, like, it's a scary thing to live your life and, and not be able to answer such an easy question, I thought. So, so let's, let's think about this for a second. You're in this situation where you're talking to people and just asking the simple question, right? Are you happy? And what you're seeing in the body language was confusion. Is that right? Yes. And almost like this crisis moment where they thought that they should say yes, but they felt like it was either probably no, or they didn't know, or possibly the other thought, one I thought at the time was maybe no one really ever asked them. Uh-huh. Right. Sure. I mean, not only like in their personal life, but even at work, right. And the people that are around them, they just expected that, you know, you're on a track to do something to get to a partner level. Cause you're in a law firm and this is just what you do. And therefore, what does it really matter? Right. Like happiness is sort of in the back of it or, you know, and you could even fill in the word fulfillment, it's probably a higher order. It's a higher order thing beyond that, but it's, it was a scary proposition of doing this. And I think at the end of it, when I was driving back to school, I thought to myself, what makes me think that I could do what these 30 some really smart people all have failed or are challenged to do. Mm-hmm. I really need to take a look, hard look in the mirror about what I want to do with my life because I'm on the same road they're on and I'm not going to be able to, answer that question probably pretty well if I'm asked at some point either. And is that, and is that the life that I really want to live? Yeah. So the first the first part of it is, is you're describing it and you see the body language is you asking the question that they may never have asked themselves. So that confusion is kind of like, well, I'm supposed to say, yes, I'm happy. And yet I don't really know. Let me think about this for a minute. So the eyes dart and the movement and so on. So that, and I, I would call that a crisis of authenticity. They're in that moment where they want to be authentic. They want to tell you the truth. They know that socially, of course, I'm happy. I'm young. I'm, you know, I'm a third year law student. I've got the world at my feet. Yes. But yet, am I? When I look forward and thinking I'm going to be working 80, 90 hours a week and trying to become a partner of a law firm, I know the path. Am I really happy with not just now, but looking into the future? That's where I said uh, there's the confusion. It's a difficult question. And I asked some people that were a partner level too. So they had been doing this for a long time too. And they still, the answer still like confused them. Yeah. They couldn't really answer it. I mean, 
And especially it was very incongruent because, you know, when you ask someone and everyone has an answer to the question and they seem very self-assured, when you go and change that, you can immediately notice it when it is a significant change versus the rest of your answers that you have given or the rest of the time that you're spending with someone is really out of sorts or out of sync or really different. Yeah. And it honestly, I probably would have never even thought about it had it not been that radical and it hadn't been that many people. Right. I mean, I think it was this whole thing that just sort of happened like it was almost sort of like a happy accident in a way. Right. It's like one of those things where you didn't plan because I planned these interviews and I'd been asked all the questions. And the only question I didn't ask the third year law students that I knew was this one. Yeah. You know, and by the time I got home, then I was like, I had gotten an AOL disc in the mail, like probably a couple months before this, or I don't know, it was a little while before. And I started, I'd done a lot of reading and technology and I thought it was just fascinating. And I was like, well, you know, I could do something completely radical, which would be to go to Silicon Valley, because end of the day, law school taught me the art of asking a question and it's all about problem solving. Right. And, you know, but the problem of going and doing something like that is when almost everyone you're working with is doing the law, then no one's there really to support you. Okay, so hold on. Let's take that moment because this is an important moment for you. So you look at this disc and you think of technology and you probably thought, okay, cool. You've been getting these interviews on happy what people are in their confusion of it, or some people are happy. They're, they're not happy. They're, their partners, they're got all this money, you know, their partners are making a bunch of money in New York city, right? Shouldn't they be happy? Well, studies show that it doesn't matter how much money you make. That's not going to make you happy. However, what was it in that moment? If you go back to that moment when you picked up that disc and you thought, huh, maybe I'll try something different. What, what was that like? I mean, how did you come to that realization? Like in that moment, it was just, did it strike like lightning hit you or what well, was a little, it? Bit, a little bit of that. And I thought that I'd read some articles and it seemed like a lot of these people doing this entrepreneurs were just doing something that was completely out of the box. They seemed energized. They seemed happy. It seemed a lot different than my law school experience had been. And I knew at this point that going down the road of being a lawyer, I was good, right? I was in the top 25% of my class, but what I was good at was on the networking side, which was being more of the rainmaker. And the problem with that after I looked into the successful people is those are the people that are out to, you know, 11, 12, 1, 2 every night because they're bringing the money. They're not necessarily the best attorneys, but they bring in money, so they're a part of this. And I was like, I could see my life flashing before my eyes because I'm like, that's me because I'm an extrovert. So sitting in a room for 16 hours a day doing this stuff at some point would drive me absolutely insane. Right. And I defaulted the other way because that is the way that I could find some semblance of happiness and get out and be more in a power zone instead of forcing myself against this huge resistance path. But that path probably will lead me to being an early death, like everything else. And I was like, all of this stuff seemed really unappealing as I pressed the fast forward button. And then I saw this out technology thing and I thought, well, I don't really know whether this is going to work, but I know this other way for sure, there is probably a 99% chance that there is going to become a major crisis in my life if I go down this path. 
So yeah, you're at this crossroads in a lot of ways where you're like, and, and this happens to a lot of us where you're looking at something and you say, well, this would be okay, but I don't like the path and I know what that path looks like. So let's try anything else. <laughs> you know, let's really, that was probably it because the problem is when I went to like the career counselors and arrested the people and talked to the people that I knew in law school, everyone thought I was crazy and they tried to talk me out of it. So that was even harder because I didn't like have any real support, right? You know, mm. my mom was like really thinking through and she, I don't think she was supportive of it to a point, but I really had nothing. So it, it was really difficult because the only person you could listen to was the voice inside of yourself. And that's hard when you have all the chatter outside yourself going the other way. And, you know, there wasn't Google or the rest of the things that I could look a lot of this stuff up. I had to go into the library and read newspapers. I mean, it was a lot more complex to get all this information and figure all of this stuff out without really any help and any knowledge of really what to do. Mm. And ABA had really small stuff on non-legal careers and they didn't really at that time focus much on it. So that wasn't really a help, even if I stepped out because I contacted them about this and I didn't really get a lot of help from them. I can imagine that this is the whole school, right? It's law school. Like, what do you mean you don't want to do law? But Jason, Jason, you're in the top part of your class. Yeah. Oh my God, what's wrong with you? And so you're getting all this negative, but your gut and your internally where you're going and I'm going to separate something right now about this conversation. A lot of people talk about where happiness is a choice and in a lot of ways, happiness is a choice, but sometimes it can be fleeting. And Matthew McConaughey actually has some videos on YouTube. If you look up Matthew McConaughey on happiness, he's got these videos that talks about the difference between happiness and joy and joy. And you're talking about is using your strengths and your passion around those strengths to do something that you enjoy doing and being very, very focused on the process, not the outcomes. Yes. And I think that's hard to do when you go against the stream and the only person you have is yourself and the confidence in that to try to do that and go counter to everything. must have been a tough decision for you. Yeah, because the problem is with that decision is any mistake you make the little voice in your head says, see, you should have gone on this path. And so you fight with that thing inside of your head along with it. So you Mm -hmm. feel the bumps in the road much more than you normally would. And I mean, I think sometimes that's good because that sets up resilience, right? And that's us a perseverance and determination. So at that point, like you're all in, right? There isn't any, there isn't option B. There's only option A. So you don't have a choice at that point. So it does make you work harder and dig deeper because you know that you have to keep going forward because it's a choice you made and it's a choice you want to make. And the alternative isn't one you want to go down. Right. But I still took like, I still finished law school. Right. And I still took the LSAT. I mean, I took not the LSAT, but I took, you know, to get my bar and I took, so it's not like I didn't, I finished it all forward. Like I didn't like opt out of any of this stuff. It wasn't like stupid, but I had planned opposite things to do. And then immediately my plan was to go to San Francisco. And that's what I did. In leadership, we call this the decision of exclusion. So you talk about, I've got plan a stay in law plan B go to Silicon Valley. Could you stay in law and go to Silicon Valley? Yeah, you, you could. 
but you can't stay in law and stay in New York City and go to Silicon Valley all at the same time. There's certain levels of exclusion with each decisions that we make. Yeah. And the commitment, there's an, uh, you know, an old ancient story about Alexander the Great when they came to, to the shores. I, I think it was Greece or someplace, some, someplace they were conquering, okay? And they brought the ships in and he heard some rumors or some rumblings that they were concerned about whether they could win the battle or not. So Alexander turned to his uh, second general. He said, burn all the ships. And they burned all the ships and they see all the ships burning. Okay, now let's go conquer. We have nowhere else to go. And guess what? They conquered. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit. What you, like you said, you make that path, you make that choice. There comes a point where you got to go all in. You can't, you can't go halfway, right? So you yeah. went all in. So what, what happened next? Did you move to California? And- so I moved to San Francisco. I had a friend out there. And one of the things that I thought to myself was that I didn't really necessarily know if I wanted to do law. And he was working in a marketing agency that had a lot of re- like really good clients. And it was a lot of young people, super smart people. And it was an opportunity to work in a lot of different businesses, right? And learn them. And the opportunity for me was, I was like, okay, if I can work on the more B2B side of the businesses, I can really get a technical skill set, learn about technology. And that could be a significant opportunity for me to see the things that I might like to do. So I could sort of kill multiple birds with one stone, and then there was a lot more opportunities ahead of me. And, you know, in a year, if I didn't like it, I could try to look for law firms or things that I could do. So I took the California bar, right? So at the time, so that was like all, I had all planned sort of some of these things, options in my head out that, okay, I could try to do this, this, or that. And then that's what I ended up doing, right? So in some ways, it was a step back because I had to take less money to do this and an opportunity and learn things. And then I had to work really hard to try to get a lot more experience and understand how to excel in all these things. And I didn't know anyone in San Francisco, right? I knew one person. And my friend was like, you know, he was living with someone and like literally engaged. So that was it, right? So I had to go do everything from scratch across the country, which is super hard. Right? Even finding a place to live in San Francisco, I think the occupancy rate when I went there was like 98 or 99%. Right. So just right. finding a place to live, right, no matter what you were going to do. So it was a lot of challenges to learn and to go through this process. And what I'm hearing you say, though, is you had a sense of a plan. You, you went out there. You had a, a job so you could pay your bills. You took the bar, so you had a contingency plan, a backup if you absolutely needed it. Uh, so you didn't burn the ships, but uh, you still didn't want to go there if you didn't have to. Um, and you started to learn about all these tech companies. So then when did you get into becoming this uh, chief people officer where you got into organizations where you started helping teams and people? Because right now I've got this young guy who's passed the bar in New York and California. So you could be bi-coastal if you wanted to be a lawyer doing all that, right? And you wouldn't be the first, a master's in communications and the technology bug. So now where do we go from here? Well, you know, as I had gotten more experience, I wanted to do a startup and I found some really good people and they had some good ideas, just the execution didn't fall into place, right? And I think at some level, there's a lot of dice rolls, and, and you do learn a lot 
but I was like, I was going to give it one more shot. And then I lived through the downturn. Right. So back when the economy crashed right in 2000 and the tech thing hit, I had a few friends of mine whose parents had passed away pretty suddenly. And I hadn't ever been, I have been around my mom since really college or like before that. And I thought to myself, if something happened to her and I didn't really get to spend any time, I would feel not good about that decision. And I had so many friends moving away from San Francisco and doing everything else that I thought, okay, well, and I could move back at some point. So she moved to Dallas and I ended up finding a job in a startup company that ended up going public, but I got another job in Austin and the person who I got the job from, we, we became like instant, like uh, he was like mentor. Like it was one of those instant chemistry things. And he was like, I landed the job. I went to Austin and he was like, I have a better job for you. And he drove me to another interview for the startup company where I was hired. And then I got to move wow. to Dallas. Wow. So that was a pretty, you know, pivotal moment. And then, you know, I went through that, but it was hard. The company is based in Montana and it was hard just working remotely. I mean, a lot of the people that were on the executive level were all in Montana and the company I had seen through talking to people that around 40 years relationships at a higher level had gotten strained. So I knew probably I would have to either move there or probably exit and I had thought that the next step beyond that was probably working at a Fortune 50 company. And I had worked at HP, and I had picked the wrong time <laughs> mm. to go there because the company is sort of decimated. And as I went through the end of that whole process, I thought to myself, you know, I really love the people working with them and the management and leadership and the, these other things, but I don't like the politics but I wasn't really sure how to put all this stuff together. I had talked to people, but I hadn't really had anything. So I went to another startup company with a purpose or a public company, but it's pretty small in Dallas with trying to figure that out. So I decided to try to create the smallest thing that I could do for someone and I thought if I could create something, that I could go talk to someone who had an existing business and leverage it with inside of it. I could see if I could grow this concept okay. and it would cost me nothing. And I had to, because I had a job or as a VP in marketing in like a company where I didn't have that much time. And I wanted to see if this would work. So one of the things I had done well was build a really good network. And I'd done a lot of work like raising money for charities and nonprofits. So what I did was just something small, like how to build a great social life. And I looked on Amazon and looked on the stuff and there weren't really any books out there. Like Keith Ferrazzi's book, like, you know, Never Eat Alone was probably like the only thing. And that was on the professional side, but there was a lot of weaknesses in that I thought. So I decided that I would sort of draft a book that was going to be good enough and then a plan. And I pitched it to someone who had a business and I was like, well, what about using this and leveraging it? And we worked together for a time, but I wanted to go in another direction of doing more professional stuff. But I proved out the concept because we had made money and we started selling things off it. And then I was like, finally, I just, I have to jump in and do this like full time. And I found a couple people um, that I had known here networking that were really high level people. 
like a chairman in a large company and a couple other people. And I was like, well, I'm going to prove for like six or eight months, I'm going to undercharge them, which is not good for me, but it's good because I know I can get them as clients. And I'm going to see how much of a change I can make in their life to see, is this something that I'm good at? And can I prove to myself that I can walk the walk? You know, you went from New York, you go to California, you're in a startup, you, you do some work in that, you, you move to Dallas, you're in another startup, you work for HP, you're in another startup. And through all of this, you're working with people, you're building teams, you're learning, right? And then you realize that, gee, I want to do something to help different companies at different times to kind of reach out. And it sounds like with your network, with the nonprofits and building that strong network, that was the foundation of you being able to go out and step on your own. Because I'm going to guess that that network is what connected you to the people that became clients. It did. And that really helped, especially in the beginning, because I had a people take some level of a leap of faith, right? Because I had to sell them on helping me, right? And that's a challenge. So talk to me a little bit about how you went about building that network and building those relationships to make it strong enough so that once you did this, I think you did that without the thought of having a business, I did. One of the things that I found out or I talked to people about is that when you can help people and serve and connect them together, it's a noble thing to do in life. And if you can do it without being attached to the outcome or at least too attached to the outcome, you then could do some pretty incredible things and make some great relationships with people because you would operate in a way where you're making deposits in the relationship bank account first before you're taking withdrawals. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, we started this whole thing about happiness and I'm going to, I'm going to weave this together in just a second. You know, just bear with me for a second because Martin Slegman, who's the father of positive psychology, wrote the book Flourish years ago. And he has, an, he has a, an exercise in the book that we recommend when we do executive coaching or leadership programs to write down three things that went well today. At the end of the day, nine, 10 o'clock at night, write three things that went well and why. The important thing is to write why. Because we often just take good things happening to us for granted and don't really realize that a good thing happened to me today, like... I'm on this podcast with Jason is a good thing. Well, why? Well, because I reached out to a whole bunch of people in my network and asked them to be on podcasts. Well, why did that work? Well, because I have these relationships and Jason came to me through my network. It's not, it's not coincidence. It's not stuff doesn't happen without taking some action, right? A lot of actions, a lot of actions. And, but what I loved what you said was to help serve and connect without being too attached to the outcome. I'd love to hear it. There's got to be a story in that where it fed into your career, your future, the things that you do, where you helped, you served, you connected some people without any concern for the attachment to the outcome. And then later on, months, years later, it came back to you. What ended up happening was I had read a lot of books. I talked to a lot of different people about how they're socializing and meeting other people and what they were doing. And I found some people and it was only a couple of people. And I had spoken to a lot of people, right? Cause I, out of law school research is something that I take pretty seriously. And I do all the time, even today, like at least once or twice a week, I'm spending a significant amount of time reading or doing stuff. So I try to do a lot of different experiments 
And so they told me that they were introducing strangers together. And it was a pretty rough concept. And I thought to myself, like, how would that look like if I worked a room and started to introduce people I didn't know together? Mm. What would the outcome of that look like? And then I said to myself when I was here, where's the best place to go with people that they're not out to get something, they're out to give, at least in the concept of entering the room. And I thought to myself, well, there's two places, right? They're charitable organizations and nonprofits. And and the things that came to my mind were more culturally minded things like, you know, people that were in parks or people that were doing, you know, opera, symphony or whatever. So I put together a list, which is difficult, of finding places where young professionals would go. And I didn't know really anyone doing this at this time in Dallas. So what I did was I went and I planned out ahead of time. I was like, okay, I'll go to the bar. I'll go get a drink. I'll go introduce two people together. And I said, let me get it at least five times. I'll go out and do this and see what happens, right? And then after that, I'll either stop or continue. I'll go to five separate events. So I planned them. And it was super nervous, right? Because this is like really weird, right? Like it's not, it was extremely uncomfortable. So I went to someone at the bar and literally all I did was I said, hi, how are you doing? And I don't even remember even at the time or most of the time, a lot of times what people are saying back, but there was someone and that person's on my left and there was a person on my right. And I literally just grabbed, touched them by the shoulders and there were like two guys. And I was like, hey, you know, I think you two should meet each other. I think we'd really hit it off. <laughs> that's amazing and they started to talk and introduce themselves and i still they didn't know any of my names and then i pulled a couple of people that were right behind me and interrupted them were talking and did pretty similar things and i had a bunch of people talking right and i just said hi whatever i didn't really even do anything in the conversation except maybe a couple little things that's it And then what I found was as I was walking around the room and I ran into them, I would say, hi, I would act differently. I'd sort of think of myself, I was the mayor of great energy. I was the person bringing people together. I sort of put that in my head. And then they introduced me to their friends like, hey, you need to meet Jason, right? Like they were excited to meet me. They didn't know anything about me. Like they don't even remember even they knew my name. And I would meet all of the people they came with. And they would treat me as though I was their friend. Here's what I'm hearing, though. You did this by introducing these strangers. And what you did was you changed the energy in the room. Yes. Completely changed the energy with no expectation of it coming back to you. And it did some because people then started to engage you. But you do that with four or five or six people in a room. And they're talking to 12 people now that if they were by themselves, you change the energy in the room. Now, let's talk about that as it relates to leadership. You know, we've been going down this path and talking about your background and what you, but this right here, there's a couple of things that you said. Number one, when you started, you were extremely uncomfortable and I would challenge anybody to go and try this. This is like kind of interesting. Walk into a bar, see two, you know, people sitting next, you know, by themselves at the bar, introduce them like, you know, them, oh, you need to meet each other and talk to them. And the energy for you that it took to overcome that discomfort introduce these two people and do it multiple times and change the energy in the room. How does that relate to leadership? Well, I mean, I think in life, like it's extremely uncomfortable to do any of the things that are required to do to become a leader, right? Cause you have to step way out of your comfort zone. You have to try new things and it's all about the relationships you build 
and how you build them, right? And I think the process of going through this teaches you that we make up all these stories in our head out we were going to fail, right? But none of them came true. Like I tell people, I've introduced probably, I want to say 50,000 people or something to each other doing this thing. The worst thing that's ever happened to me is people have walked away. Mm. No one's ever thrown water in my face. No one's ever slapped me. No one's ever cursed me out, right? And I had thought all these things in my head, right, before I had done it the first time. Yeah. Right? So we are our own worst enemy. But when I actually did it, none of this stuff had occurred. But all of these positive things have come out of it. And I would think the other part of this is the most important skill sets you can learn are soft skills or power skills. And by doing all of these things, it's really helped me build the people skills that people struggle with because it's about practice and it's about building on experiences and learning the things that you aren't doing as well, which requires you to do work versus hard skills. Yeah. Yeah. And these are the hard skills, the soft skills. So I, I have to share with you a quote I've used many times, but Michael Dan Matanya said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. So that's what you just said is you had all these things that might happen to you. And what I'm hearing to say for leaders is this extreme uncomfort, discomfort, get over it, get through it, push through it. And most of the things that you think that are negative won't happen. But there's another piece to this around the discomfort, and it's called vulnerability. Yes. In leadership, you made yourself vulnerable. And that's why everybody made this connection to you. You walk around the bar and everybody thinks they know Jason, right? Jason's awesome. Look, he introduced everybody, changed the energy in the room. They don't even know who you are. And this level of vulnerability, our leadership programs, first of all, our definition of leadership starts by saying the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassionate accountability. So it starts with building relationships and building relationships means building trust and trust is ba- based on two things, being able to being able to be my commitments, but also being vulnerable. We have in our program, we have people share vulnerable moments. Now it's, it's confidential and closed room. Nobody can talk outside the room. It's very, very confidential. But it would be like you and I sharing something, Jason, that says an uncomfortable situation. And we share that and we talk about this is what happened to me, an embarrassing moment or a significant person in my life. And we share that on teams and how powerful that is. And I think that I'm sure that you use this extreme uncomfortability example in the work that you do to build teams to help them overcome some of the the separation So if there was one or two things that you could summarize this conversation from a leadership standpoint, that you could write yourself a letter and say, Jason, maybe it was when you were getting out of law school or, and you would write yourself a letter and give yourself advice. What would you have written yourself? What would you have liked to tell yourself from 20 or 25 years ago? I think is that one of the things is vulnerability is the key and you Mm -hmm. have to start that way. And everyone wants to have meaty conversations about things that matter. And you have to start. And if you do, you can build high degrees of trust within individuals and groups. And that is the glue that makes all of this stuff work together. And without it, it, it's what will undo every leader and every manager and really ends up being the problem because we don't see this as being most, uh, very few leaders I've run across look at that as being strategic. 
Mm-hmm. Like very few people have like teamwork as a strategic initiative in a business, even today, right? Mm-hmm. They're living off of the purpose of COVID of keeping us alive. So I think a lot of the data and engagement and stuff, while it looks great, when people are communicating, that will eventually wash away because you can't live on adrenaline and you can't live like this if you don't have the actual initiative around it, right? And it eventually, like everything else, right, will go back to the other side. And so I would tell myself that because it would cut through. And I think that's a lot of these conversations, what I was able to do too, was to ask people questions that mattered to them that showed I cared. And so I could build trust. And part of the trust is when you introduce someone to someone else, the only people that really do that are people in your inner circle. So what I did unconsciously was become a part of their inner circle. And I think if we think on ways that we can do that with strangers or anyone, that's the key of being a great leader is doing that, right? And learning how to do that at scale, which is really hard to do. But that's what great organizations do across the board. But it's the one thing they constantly forget because they they usually go to the word like culture, right? But it's meaningless unless there are strategic initiatives behind it, like which usually doesn't happen. So that was what I would tell myself is to focus on that because the rest of the things will all come together with hard work, determination, perseverance, and, you know, learning hard skills. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's some great stuff, and it's a great story. Uh, listening to you talk about going from law school and feeling isolated and on your own to make a decision to move on to do something that you're not really sure it's going to be better, but you're sure it's not going to be worse than being a lawyer in New York City working eighty or ninety hours a week, and you stepped away from that. And I, I've got to give you a lot of credit for making that tough decision as a young man and to fly across the country, try a whole new job, go into marketing, go to Austin, go to Dallas do a bunch of startups and become this chief people officer that you are today. It's great. And what I'm going to water this down into four words today, four words that I've learned from you, overcoming strangers at work, because as leaders, what we want to do is get people to engage each other, belong with each other and overcome this strangeness or strangers at work that we engage every single day. And we don't really get to know the people that are around us. We need to take that time. So thank you so much, Jason, for your insights and your thoughts. I really appreciate your journey. It's been great talking to you. Great talking to you too. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this has been Leading from the Front. Please subscribe. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.